Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back George Saunders, MacArthur Fellow and Booker Prize winner, who is the author of 11 books. He was on the show with me for his story collection, uh, 10th of December, back in 2013, his critically acclaimed novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, in 2017, and his masterclass on the short story form as taught through Russian authors, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, last year. He returns with a collection of short stories that continue to attempt to make sense of our increasingly troubled world. Liberation Day is out later this month. It's published by Random House, and we're going to spend a little time dissecting it. Before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks every single week. You can visit all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out. If the show has boosted your writing in some way or you've gotten some useful advice, this is an easy way to reach out to us and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Hey, George Saunders, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. It's always, always, I always look forward to it. So this collection somehow feels like more George Saunders to me than George Saunders. Like if you brewed a cup of full roasted George Saunders coffee and then just like skimmed the crema off the top. I don't know exactly why I'm feeling that way, but, but I kind I of, you felt that way too. Like if the, if the work is getting more distilled and more of what it always was, do you, do you feel that? I do. And you know, the, from this end, the symptom is, um, you know, I'm just starting to talk about this book and I'm not coming up with anything. I'm, I, the, it's sort of like confused me in a way that I really like the, the stories I'm, I, you know, worked hard on them all and worked hard on ordering them. And now I'm like, yeah, what did I do? You know? So, so yeah, I think so. It's uh, it's, it's, it was a nice feeling really. We can get to that in a minute because I know you've you've had that comment a lot in your New York. A lot of these appeared in the New Yorker, and I read them the first time around, and so it was fun to get to revisit them. But I was kind of wondering if, since you did swimming in the pond in the rain, if that somehow changed your own writing. I mean, I know you've been teaching for forever, but just the act of doing that book, I wondered if some of that seeped into you and it kind of changed the way you approached the form. For sure. You know, it was, I, I didn't expect it, but um, I basically just read seven or eight of those Russian stories for a, a year and a half. I didn't read anything else really. And um, then when I went to write stories, I found one that I just was in love with the form all over again. I just I couldn't get enough of it. And then also there were moments in the stories where my habit would have made me do a certain thing, but somehow being in those Russian stories made me aware of my habit and then gave me some options like, oh, actually you could go this way with it. Uh, and there was another thing where I think, um, you know, my stories tend to be a little bit, I mean, they're, they're kind of epic in the sense that they often, someone dies at the end or there's some, you know, and those Russians are much more subtle and they can, you know, just show you some small human tendency, nothing big, and then just sort of let it play out. And by the end, it's a very deep thing that's been said about a very slight action so that I found in a couple of the stories, I, I was exploring that a little bit. So yeah, it was a great um, rejuvenator, really, to do that book. Can you think of an example of this, a story in this book that you were thinking about when you did that, and a change? That yeah, actually, the last story called "My House," which is a little short five-page thing, I, and I wrote it in five days, which for me is unheard of. Uh, but it was basically just I, I had um, seen a house once that I loved and I wanted it, and but I, you know, we 
it was in a town where we wouldn't live. Uh, and so I just was kind of mentally thinking about that, how strange it is when you buy a house from someone, especially if the person who's selling it really loves it. And uh, I just had a little idea about a, a sort of misunderstanding that could happen and carried that around my mind for a couple of years. And then I thought, well, that's not really, well, is that a story? And I kind of heard Chekhov going, of course it is, dummy. You know, you just concentrate on a little bit and uh, it's a human moment. So it's got to be, there's got to be a story in there somewhere. And uh, so that was nice because suddenly you think, well, maybe every story doesn't have to be a block, a 30 page blockbuster, like these, these small human moments that the Russians were so good at observing are really, uh, they're really fruitful. I loved that the editor of this collection at Random House called that story out as being, you know, just a gut punch poignant moment at the end of that. It's yeah. funny because that, that story, it went such a different way than I expected it. You know, there were these little hints that maybe this was sort of a civil war house and this guy might've been, you know, a little sympathetic or kind of into civil war porn, you know, South. Porn. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was, my brain was sort of ticking along those lines. And then when it kind of made a, a left-hand turn, it was great. You know, it was just, right. it was unexpected to me. And I, I, did, I didn't know if that was your intent or not. But not was... really, but you know, what happened was I'd finished the book. I thought, and I, I, did one of those last, well, last eight read-throughs, you know, and, you, and I, every time I'd get to the end of the previous story, which is called Elliot Spencer, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know, but I, I just felt almost like I had one foot in the air, like there's one more thing I wanted to say, and what I've learned to do is kind of trust my subconscious and just say, don't decide what you want to say, just say something, and you'll blurt out uh, what you need, and so I felt like that book kind of brought together a couple different elements in the in the thing. And uh, yeah, so it just felt it felt like the story needed that foot to land on, so or the book needed that foot to land on a little bit. But but I think what you described is so interesting because that was the other thing that these Russians taught me is that you know there's so many ways of seeing a story and there's no correct way, but whichever way helps you is the the right way. So uh, I I started thinking that stories are really just um, a story is a pattern of me the writer creating an expectation in your mind. And then I kind of satisfy it, but not quite. There, there's a little bit of, of uh, we're missing a little bit there, which then creates another judgment on your part and expectation. And then I alter that. So by the end of it, we've gone down this path together toward, I guess you'd say, you know, increased clarity or increased understanding, which sometimes can feel like increased empathy because we went from some simple ideas about the situation into increasingly more complicated and nuanced uh, versions of it. So as a writer, you're always, I think you're, the main job is to create some kind of expectation first, and then don't forget that you created it, you know. It felt like, like, I, I don't want to reduce the collection to, to anything, but it did feel very, especially some of the stories felt very of our time, very post 2016. I, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's Trumpism, if it's, you know, certainly dystopian, if it's turning each other, you know, some of these stories are set in the fairly near future that we could not too difficultly imagine. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I felt yeah. like there was something, I, I felt the one thing that did unify the collection was that I, uh, I've had the experience the last four or five years of just going, ho ho, you don't know as much as you think you did. You know, the world is, you talk about something going off in a different direction. Um, and then sort of saying to myself, well, okay, that's true, but let's, let's just admit it's on me. If, if I, if something shocks me, you know, the world isn't wrong. The world is what it is, or the world wasn't deceiving you. The world was just what it was, but my understanding wasn't complete. So then you, you end up on, in my case, I was shocked by election night 2016. Well, obviously 
it wasn't some kind of weird inverse miracle. It was the world playing out, but I just hadn't been attuned enough to it. So in a sense, I'm intrigued by where we find ourselves because it means that however I've been thinking about all these years isn't sufficient, <laughs> you know, which is a little sobering. Um, but then it also means that, you know, that, that understanding could be improved, you know? So I think that in the book, I see a lot of instances of someone believing very strongly in thing A and then the world kind of biting him in the nether parts and he goes, oh, I, I see I was wrong, you know, and what do we do in that moment? I was wondering if you felt like the noise of the world was louder in your ear for this collection than, than maybe other things you've written. Probably, probably, because even with 10th of December, the noise was loud, but it was, but I liked it. You know, I liked what was happening. I felt we were on the right sort of in the right direction and also personally you know i was feeling um not confused by the body politic i you know uh so yeah i think that's probably true and then you know i also thought well whatever is loud in your ear that's what you have to honor in the stories you can't you, you know my whole thing is you can't decide what to write about you have to just try to write in a way that's lively and then that's how you find out what you were worried about so yeah i think that's a fair statement um and my hope is that you know fiction i don't know short stories don't really work that well on the topical but sometimes i think what you can do is you can take the topical as a temporary or a current manifestation of the eternal you know so for example uh there's a story in the book called love letter which is very on one level very topical it's a grandfather maybe 20 years from now writing to his grandson to explain how we lost our democracy basically um but also on a deeper level, it felt to me like it was wanting to be about uh, that moment when we were out of step with our beliefs. You know, what do you uh, and and why why would we be? Why would we ever be out of step with our beliefs? Well, it, you know, as we get older, we see that that happens often. Uh, pragmatism or or we're blind to reality or whatever. Which, so so then at the higher level, I hope that story is about it is sort of applicable to a lot of times. Any time when someone is living in a way that they uh, quickly see is, is not, uh, the way they would have liked to live, you know, something like that. Before we dive into the collection a little specifically, it was funny. I was talking to my, my husband, yeah. he's been a huge fan of yours too. And I said, awesome. you know, George was a engineer by training and he's like, Oh my God, it all makes sense. That makes sense that he was. And I said, really, what do you mean? And he said, well, he's, he's so internalized the systems. He's a lawyer. So, uh, mm -hmm. engineer, lawyer, he, uh, he's so internalized the systems of how a story is structured, the engine of what makes it work and the, that he can be really playful with it. And I, I said, I kind of think he'd disagree with you, but you know, I guess we'll find out if you, if you feel like having come from that discipline, as opposed to, you know, being steeped in Flaubert or something since you were born, if that gave you sort of an internal understanding of how systems work and how the system of a story might work and then lets you play, or if you just feel like they're on two different planes. No, I actually agree with him. I'm sorry to say, um, <laughs> just because I know you better. But no, I mean, I, there is something, well, there are two things. One is just procedurally. So in engineering school, we were always kind of taught that, I mean, the mantra at the School of Mines was no partial credit. So if you got to the end of a six page proof and you got the wrong answer, you got zero points. So that was very useful training for a writer. You could do 300 drafts and if it's not working, it just isn't. But on a deeper level, um, yeah, I think that, you know, a story, here I'm gonna sound really like an engineer, but because it's it's a linear temporal phenomenon, you know, you, you pick up the story on Thursday at three o'clock and you read it until 3.15 and you read it in order. Um, 
then whatever happens to you as the reader, uh, you know, by definition is trackable to that process of, of beginning and then ending. So uh, something that I found really useful and actually anxiety reducing was the thought that a story is a system. It's kind of a machine to produce whatever emotion or, or so we, if it goes off track, which of course mine do when they start and all the way through, you can, uh, by sort of imagining that you're a first time reader, you can see where the story, where the system fails, you know, you suddenly you lose interest on page two and a half. Okay. That's where you start. And to me, that's a really hopeful way to work, uh, as opposed to the muse left you know, mm-hmm. or I lost my mojo that I, you know, you, the muse leaves you, there's nothing to do about that. But if you say, well, suddenly I got to a decision point on page two, and I think I made a strange decision there. That's, that's workable, you know? Yeah. So I think there is something now, of course, that makes into that is the idea that you can't, unfortunately, simply rely on your, your analytical abilities, because then you'll have a very dry story and everyone will see it coming and it'll work just the way it's supposed to, which is the, the death knell for a work of art. Well, to defend my hypothesis of what you would have said, you you know, you've always talked about working so intuitively. And so I, I think that dance between understanding the structure of a story and how how it mechanically works and how it mechanically needs to flow, combined with this intuitive, you're right, I fell off the track here. How do we get how do we get back onto the Yes, and actually I might reverse my former position since your husband isn't here. There there is something about you can't fix that system by analysis. You, you can note a problem, but the, in my experience, the fix has to come intuitively, you know, so it's, so it's definitely a combination and, and actually so is engineering really, you know, the best engineers I knew were, you know, they had all the, the, uh, the systems uh, information down and they knew the numbers. And then there was kind of a seat of the pants quality where having been in that situation 80 times, they kind of knew to try this or try that, you know? So. Well, let's put that to work. If you're, if you're up for it and we can, we can swim in the pond with a few of these stories if you're up oh for boy. it. Oh boy! <laughs> there's so work. many lessons. <laughs> there's so many lessons in here for for writers, and uh, I'd love to to talk about some of them. So I'm teaching a short story class at at a seniors at a senior center in my town. Oh, fun! And it's super fun. It's fun to have people you know who have had these full lives and careers in you know dentistry come to the short story and you know try and understand what makes it work. Mm. So. I'm using your story. It's an old story, The Falls, from um, the 90s, along with Tobias Wolf's Bullet in the Brain to to teach character and all the different angles that you can come at character. And uh, we're just having a ball. So oh, that's uh, wonderful. They're lucky to have you. That's that's uh, a great thing to do. But I thought they would benefit from hearing, you know, a little bit of of us dissecting a few of these because there's so many uh, so many great points to take out of it. If I had my way, we'd start with the mama bold action. Let's do that. I'll follow your lead. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So maybe we just start with, you know, kind of original kernel, and then we can we can talk about all the adjustments that were made. But sure, it, I love this. It came out in 2021 last year in the New Yorker. So I assume it was written within the last couple of years. Yes. Um, and as I remember it, we, we had rented a house in Cherry Valley, New York, which is near Cooperstown, beautiful little upstate town. Uh, and it was kind of bringing back all kinds of memories of living upstate in the autumn and so on. And, um, uh, oh, actually, no, that, okay, that's true, but it's also kind of not the main thing. Okay, this is something 
I shouldn't share, but I'll share it with you and with your audience. That, that beginning of that story was actually part of another story a long time ago, 10th of December, actually. And in that story, there's a, a kid who goes off into the woods and gets into an adventure. And I uh, was getting near the end of the story, couldn't quite figure out what to do. So I experimentally wrote a scene from the point of view of his mom, who's home waiting for him, worried because he's not home. So I wrote and I had made her into kind of a, a kid's book author, like a frustrated kid's book author. And it was pretty funny, you know, kind of nice. It's a fun thing to riff on. And then as it happened, it just didn't fit in that story. It was too close to the end. And, you know, we had a kind of a feeling of velocity and I didn't want to interrupt it. And when you really looked at it, there was no need for her to be in that story. She, you know, we knew that the kid had a mom and he went home. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a good thing if you have something that's got some spark in it. Even if you cut it, just save it somewhere, you know. Well, I saved this, but I didn't know where I saved it. And it just so happened that I was looking through some old files and found that first page and a half of the mom thinking about these different stories that are silly, you know. Uh, and I really responded to it. That's kind of funny. So then you get that beautiful moment where you've got this fragment of something that is kind of working on its own terms. It's got a little fun. Then you put it on the blank page and it'll find the story that it wants to be part of. Whereas before it didn't really belong in that story. So it, it was, it was not at home, but here I put it in there and it, uh, I just started revising it to make it funnier and to make it sharper, you know? And then at some point it said, okay, well, the story is claiming that this mom is waiting for her kid to come home. Where is he? So, okay. I had to come up with that. And then I, th I thought, you know, uh, one of my go-tos in making drama is to put a, an animal or a child in danger. That's kind of like the cheapest way to do it. And I thought, ah, I just don't want to, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to have a, a serious issue. So I thought basically, okay, think of something that would be somewhat minor, but not great. And so it just popped in my head that this kid was going to get pushed down by a kind of a, basically like a street person for no reason. And he rushes home to his mom. So that was the first beat of the story. Um, and then it was really, uh, I remember it being kind of quick after that because it, one thing caused the next, you know, they, they found the guy. Uh, I don't want to give away. They found the guy and they go to the police station. And so the story kind of told itself uh, from that beginning, but which was totally stolen from another, another story. And when do you know, because I can imagine less experienced writers taking this into a workshop and them saying, what's up with this talking can opener? And why is she imagining her son masturbating? And what what what, what is all this? Mm -hmm. And those to me were the gems. I mean, I just thought those were, first of all, they're very funny, but I think you have to have something in there beyond comic really, you know, I mean, yes, yes. funny, but it has to be doing something else. And so when do you know, because it's giving you pleasure on the sentence level and it's giving you pleasure on the humor level, but there's this bigger thing going on in the story, which is injustice and revenge and, you know, these mm -hmm. big, big questions. And so do you, do you ever say, okay, with this quip about masturbating, you know, my son masturbating is, is not in service of that. So it has to go, or it is in service of what you, you know what I'm I, this is why this is why I love your show because that's exactly the right question and the answer is yes in other words in every moment you're going am, am I going overboard uh yeah. in the in the Russian book I talked about this thing I call the Kornfeld principle which is uh there was a, a producer named Stuart Kornfeld who works with worked with Ben Stiller uh may he rest in peace uh Stuart but he, his thing was in a script every structural unit has to be um entertaining in its own right and advance the story in a meaningful way. It's got to do both. It can't just do one. So what I'm doing in a section like that is going, okay, these are jokes. Um, 
Well, they're kind of generating a, a, a context for the story, but that's a sort of a secondary thing. They're jokes and they're all serving the beat worried mom waits, basically the word mom waits. So if that's 80 pages, that's too much. You know, uh, I'm sure I tried trimming it back to just one, just to the can opener story that felt like somehow, you know, you put it on a scale, like I lost a joke, I gained some efficiency. Hmm. You know, and like in the optometrist's office, you're kind of like, is this better or that? So it's a judgment call, but your principle is exactly right. You, you can't just have the jokes. Um, so sometimes it just comes down to like, like saying, okay, right now it's a four line joke. If I cut it to two, hmm, am I losing anything? I may be losing 6% of the humor, but I get there twice as fast. Okay, do it that way, you know? Yeah. So that for me, that's what revising is. And sometimes it's quite silly, you know, the, the, um, it reminds me a little bit of like one of those movies where the car is hanging over the cliff and a mouse runs to the front of the car and then that makes the car go over the cliff. Like, you know, so it is very fine tuny. And I was thinking of that in a lot of your, and we can talk about this in other contexts too, but your, your set, your little sex scenes, which are not, they're not that many of them, but they're so great. And they're also playing on humor and, and it's just relatable. You know, I think you win the reader over with those and, but they're, they're always doing like three things. Every scene is doing like three things and it's fun. We can get to that maybe even more in, in the ghoul story, but, um, the other thing that I really liked about this story is the kind of the kaleidoscopic way that we get to her character. So we get to understand her through her writerly self, through her relationship with this. I think he's a nephew or a cousin. I forget now, Ricky. And and you do that in a lot of your stories, I think, where, where we're getting to character through all of these different arrows pointing in different directions of, of the character's psyche. And, and then I was thinking how often I'm I'm reluctant to leave my characters alone. I want them always in action with somebody, but you you're very great at leaving your characters alone and letting us come to understand their, their interior. Yeah. Does that ever scare you to leave them by themselves for so long? Well, not, not when I'm writing, but the other day I listened to the audiobook. I just got the first, you know, the first um, incarnation of it. And it was, I was, I noticed this myself that, Oh my God, nothing's happening. They're just thinking, you know? Um, so I do, I do worry about it. And it kind of works on the same principle we just talked about. Like how long can a character in a room think? Eh, it kind of depends what she's thinking. Is, is it entertaining? And then at the end, is it going to spit out at least the, uh, a simulacrum of something that we need, you know? So if she's thinking about her childhood and it's funny, that's great. But what's, what does it cause, you know? So I'm always, I have that algebra in my mind. And of course, sometimes you give yourself a free pass also. You say, well, she's thinking way too long, but I don't know. I just like it and I'm going to leave it, you know? But right. I think, I think the problem is if you're, if, um, if a writer isn't aware of the, the, um, the, the conflicting pressures that are on us in the scene to be entertaining and to make something happen, then you get in trouble. But if you're aware of them, you could say that your your individuality as a writer has to do with the mix you know how, how do you how do you get away with too much thinking you know david foster wallace would be somebody to look at for that um how do you get away with no thinking where it's just all action so it's the tension i think between the two that that sort of makes us decide who we are right were there other sticking points as you were working through that story or are there other things that you want to point out about it well the one thing i had a lot of fun with was um I mean, she's me, basically, you know, her, her way of thinking is my way, very neurotic, very, you know, self-flagellating. 
um, but also wants to do good. You know, she has a good heart. So there was something I, I, I've done in other stories, but it's just, okay, so you have her thinking. And, you know, often when we're thinking, we're actually in conversation with people, dead people, our grandmother, our, you know, our first boss or whatever, living people. Uh, so I had her be in conversation kind of with uh, a person she's offended. Let's just leave it vague, you know. So she, so she has a whole mental idea of um, almost like a kind of new age ritual where she's going to uh, beg, ask this person for forgiveness, and he's going to send a light ray back and forgive her. And I had a lot of fun with that, just because it's it's funny, but also because it's it felt to me like kind of a a literalization of what we do anyway. We're always, you know, trying to make sense of things by explaining ourselves to other people or apologizing or you know um so I, so that was a fun moment where the the um the thinking became action actually it became full-blown dialogue with this other imaginary being which is another way of coming to know her you know i mean we know us by by our neuroses you know what <laughs> what are the excessive habits of thought that we engage in well that's that's us and so that was a fun and then and that i think that happened a couple times in the story where she suddenly is you know, conversing with someone who's not there at all and negotiating <laughs> with that person. I was an old philosophy major and I thought this would make a great story to read like in an ethics class for all of these stories, you know, in a... but, Yeah, that, that one surprised me because I kept um, just without thinking about, it, I kept finding things for her to do that got her into deeper trouble. And then in the end, I, I you know, at the end, she kind of makes a decision to be, as she says it, a sin eater and to withhold, uh, something from her husband. And when she did it, I thought, good for you. You finally did a good thing. And she thinks that. And then like the next day I went, huh, that's funny. I wonder if that is the best thing. She just, you know, her husband did a kind of a, a, a bad thing and she's withholding from him the, the, the truth about the consequences. Is that really good? Or is it enabling? Is it, uh, is, is she um, making him a child or something? And so I, I sometimes think I've done decent moral work when even when I'm done, I'm kind of arguing the merits of the, the character's actions. You know, it hasn't really, and I don't think you could objectively say whether she was right or wrong in that, that you know, as in- Which as is kind of how the story ends, right? I mean, right. to find your way out of that story, you have to, you have to make a decision. That's kind of how it, how it ended is, uh, I could do well, this one small thing. But. Yes. And the thing, but the thing, you know, this is a, the, the lovely thing about fine, like working on the line level is she says to us, this is one good thing I can do. And we go, yes. And then she disappears and we go, well, hold on a second, <laughs> but, she, but she's gone. So, you know, I think in her mind at that moment, she's, she's the hero of her own narrative, you know, which actually she has been in every situation. She's, you know, and I mean, that's familiar to me, but then she goes off stage and we go, well, hold on a second, but there's nobody to ask, you know, <laughs> so I, I can, yeah. So Elliot Spencer, that was published a couple of years, that was published pre-pandemic in, uh, in the New Yorker mm -hmm. 2019. Talk about your ability to play on every single scale, every single key of the, the keyboard of life. You know, you, you play with syntax, obviously, and you play with line spacing and you play with punctuation and you play, you know, they're, they're like, I never realized the expansiveness of language until I read one of your stories. And I'm like, oh, it can do that too. It can do that. And it can do that. And I didn't even know it could do that. And it could do that. That's a huge lesson. I mean, oh, I, that's I, awfully nice to hear. That's wonderful. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've kind of, I go on the assumption that basically, you know, you give me 15 blank pages and my job is to use every bit of that page somehow to convey meaning. And then if I, 
am concentrating really hard on the story the way I love to. Um, it's a process of coming to take more and more responsibility for whatever space you have. So syntax is one thing, punctuation is one. And the kind of lovely um, assumption of that is that uh, if I'm doing it on this end, you're going to pick it up on that end, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that so that's really um, rich, you know, it, mean, it means that uh, everything matters on on my end. And it means that so so the story gets my full attention. So you get to take complete responsibility for that musical instrument that is the blank page. Um, and I love that. And then as you keep working on it more and more and more, you get sensitized to your own story. So every little thing makes a difference. Like in that one, there was a bunch of stuff at the end that I was just like, ah, how big do I make this? Do I do I put in that three space uh, separator or not? So does he um should i put a period in here or not and it actually mattered which is weird you know so that's a, it's a lot of responsibility but it's also a lot of of i guess you know power or, or influence you can in that way it really reminded me of poetry you know that you almost had to to read it the audiobook would convey it it would mm -hmm. but but seeing it on the page conveys something very different and um yeah and i think that use of white space and everything i you know i just don't see a lot of examples of that in conventional prose and short stories and novels and yeah it, it goes back to the idea that you know you, that we um it's a linear temporal experience so if you're reading and i put in that that story has like a, i think there are four space breaks and or four space between sentences and when he's think when he's speaking um so if you close that up like you go into the file and close it up and put a period there it's it's different you know mm -hmm. it really conveys meaning differently so part of it for me is to kind of uh convince myself of that by trying it and they go yeah no i mean it seems weird but it actually matters to the meaning of the story if you have a weird space break or not um and once you've convinced yourself of that then it's it's kind of a power that you can go to again and again yeah. right we'll be right back with more from george saunders and liberation day in just a moment you're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you're liking the show or you've gotten any useful tips or tricks in the last 24 years of our episodes. Check out our page. It's www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month, you get weekly writing tips and tricks as well as a few other goodies in there. And again, www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with George Saunders talking about Liberation Day. Well, we should introduce that story so people know what we're talking about. Talk a little bit about where that story originated. And I don't want to yeah. give too much of it away, but what, whatever we can say to, to set the groundwork. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, basically, I think I, I just remember thinking to myself a lot about thought, you know, and rumination and, and how uh, rumination is kind of what makes you the person you are. I mean, you are what you obsess about. And, you know, you, you're, um, your thinking helps you solidify your concepts about the world. So, so I thought, okay, well, what would it be like if somebody had the, a good mind, a good, strong brain, but we basically, you know, like you do with a laptop, we took all the data out of it. So it's just the machine, but it's no, no data. Uh, what would that person talk like? Well, the truth is at first he, he wouldn't. Okay, so what if you took that guy and you had someone trying to teach him English? What would that sound like? And so the early versions were just, of course, unreadable because that's, you know, it was just gibberish. So then I kind of started walking back the gibberish a bit and shaping it. 
um, maybe moving him further along the educational process. But so in the beginning of the story, it's just some guy who's uh, being taught what the parts of his body are called by somebody we don't know. And it's got a weird look on the page and there's a lot of fragments and a lot of strange stuff, um, which excited me like crazy. You know, mm -hmm. to get a weird language going is always my best thing. If I can come up with some exotic diction and syntax, I'm just happy. Um, so then I went, okay, so all I know is he doesn't have any thoughts in there and he's getting some and somebody's teaching him, you know, and then for me, compositionally, the main thing then is to do two things. One is I'm trying to, um, maintain that sound, mm -hmm. you know, uh, while maybe slightly uh, trying not to make it static. So letting it develop, but still being true to itself. And then in the background, I'm going, why is he talking like that? You know, what's, what's going on here? N not answering that one too energetically, but just being attentive to anything the story wants to tell me about that. And then I just start writing. And, and th that had a lot of rewriting on the first four or five pages as I figured all that out. And then eventually you go, oh, he's in a facility. Um, he's 80, which, I, you know, I didn't know at the beginning. Um, uh, and somebody is teaching. Yeah, this guy Jerry is his name. I didn't know that because he just blurted it out. Jerry is teaching him to speak. I wonder why. And then you go to the next section. So it's it's very exploratory like that. And you're trusting your reader. I mean, we're always told to trust our reader, but you're trusting your reader. I think we kind of don't find out what's going on with him until like halfway. I mean, yes. it's, it's quite a ways. Yes. And, and so you have to trust the reader to say, I'm going to stay in this liminal space with this guy who who is being lied to. And so we feel like we're kind of being lied to because we don't, we don't know what's going on. Right. And that, that, that's a really beautiful thing. It's a scary thing for a writer, I think, to say, I'm going to have to keep you with me for, you know, 10 or 12 pages yes. of, of you not knowing. That's and, a beautiful uh, observation. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, I think, that, and there's maybe two parts of it. One is, um, yes, I want to trust you 100%. And if I leave somebody behind, I'm like, okay. But come back later and try, you know, I'm, and then the second principle, I think, is that um, often in a story like this, like a sci-fi story, the character doesn't have the means to explain it to the reader. Yeah. You know, now sometimes readers will, writers will give them the means and it's a little fakey, you know, as I stood there on the edge of the abyss in my, you know, my spaceship, which was built in 2008, you know, that expositional thing, I think it really um, erodes the trust between the reader and the writer. So in the same way that if, you know, if I was um, narrating my life to you, I, I wouldn't say I picked up my cell phone, a small device used for communication, I, I would just say I picked up my cell. And if you were from an, uh, an earlier era, you know, from 1940, you kind of have to just keep up. And you'd start and you go into that state of high alert where you're looking for context clues, you know, and then when you get one, you really like me, you know, something <laughs> oh, I get you, I get to, you know, so I, I love that uh, idea that let's pretend we're the character and not say anything he, she wouldn't say, you know, um, but it is risky. And I know, like with Lincoln and the Bartle, that was a big surprise to me because I, I, you know, there was so much not explaining going on in that in that book, which I think is why it's kind of fast and but then you take it out on the road and, you know, it, it became a kind of a motif of, uh, yeah, I read the first 20 pages of your book. Ah, I'm going to try it again. You know, like that. So y y the truth is you're always going to, you know, if you were like the, <laughs> if you worked at a kiddie park and you were in charge of the little train, you know, if you're going too fast, some of the kids are going to fall off. And um, 
And if you're going too slow, some of the kids are going to get bored. So, well, that's true of because I, I was trying to think about it. I mean, there's a story in here, Liberation Day. There's a story called Ghoul, and then Elliot Spencer. All three of those were in the point of view of characters who are being lied to, right? <laughs> who are being yeah. controlled and manipulated and lied to, and their identity has been sort of stripped away. And so in all three of those cases, there there was that level of trust that you had to have that the reader's going right. to go on this journey with you. And the world that you create is so intriguing and bizarre that, of course, we'd stay with you because we're all like, what? What is, what is right? Happen? And, you know, there's also kind of a, a little bit of a, um, I don't know if it's bait and switch, but I mean, if, if you... Uh, are wondering uh, why is he talking that way? Now you you know a reader will go. They're not unhappy to have a question hanging over a story, but then if I give you even a partial answer in the next section, well, for example, in, in that story, there are several times where he says something kind of weird, and Jerry, who's his quote unquote normal minder, has a bit of a laugh. Oh boy, you're that's maybe um, that's enough for the reader to go, oh, okay, so I'm not crazy. He is talking funny. You know, I'm asking the right question. The story just gave me an acknowledgement of that. So then you feel on board. So it's, so for me, a lot of it is the, um, the process of being aware at any moment of what I am withholding and then saying, ah, you got to give her a little help there at some point. You've got to give her just at least a little pat on the hand to say, yes, I know I'm being difficult. Bear yeah, with yeah. me, you know? Yeah. Right. And I love that these stories that are about big, th you know, Elliot Spencer, the assumption would be if you finished it, that this is about Trump rallies and he's, he's being, I, I don't want to give too much away, but the assumption is it would have, my assumption was, I should say, is that it came from a much different place. It came from politics and it came from, but, but as you're talking about, it, it sounds like that was, that was almost secondary. That's, that's where it led to, but that isn't where it came from. Yeah. Or maybe it's like you keep you know, the experiences that we have and, and our, our interests of the moment, I always think that they're sort of being held off in a side room or, you know, like at a, at a club behind a red ropes. And so for me, you know, I'd covered the Trump rallies for the New Yorker. And uh, one of the most uh, chilling kind of sickening things I saw was when the Trump rallies would empty out and the protesters would meet them. And there'd be this like two rivers coming together. And it was always so harsh and violent and people who, you know, they might have parked together 15 minutes before and said hello, but now they're screaming at each other. Uh, it really upset me. I, 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 it left a kind of a, a dark place in my heart, actually, to see, you know, our country and to see that kind of violence and divisiveness. So I carried that around with me. I wrote about it in the piece and carried it around with me. And at a critical moment in this story, which to my mind wasn't about any of that. It's just about a guy who's been brainwashed, basically, or brain wiped. Um, that idea was behind the rope and it jumped the rope and came in, you know? So I think, and then, and then I think for me, the trick is to say, okay, you're in here, but don't tell me what the story is about. You, you can be in there as a fragment or as a, a notion, but mind your manners and let me tell you what this, what you're going to do in this story, you know? So, you, so that way you get the, the, the kind of emotional charge of that moment, you get the power of it, but you destabilize it. Uh, by shearing away its initial meaning, which was kind of reductive and simplistic. Now you've got the idea of two groups of people in incredible uh, con conflict over politics, but you can use it however you want to use it, if that makes sense, you know? So it's, it's a complicated psychological process. But basically my thing is if you, if you want to come in to the story and you can earn it, come on in and just earn your keep, you know?
Yeah. And then getting him out of it. I mean, you had to get him out of it in a, his reasons for being in it were, were very different than you would expect his reasons for being in it. Yeah. And I think one way to make stories complex is to, you know, as they present problems to you, uh, instead of seeing them as, you know, like evidence of one's technical deficiency, you see it as the story telling you where to go. So in that one, I remember getting to a place where I'm like, why, why is he in here? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. How could he, who'd, who would come in here? And then your mind posits a series of solutions to that. But the first, the first moment of like, oh no, I wrote a honker. I wrote a story that can't be finished, you know? So the sort of professional thing is to go, no, you didn't. All stories can be finished. That defect is uh, almost like a ladder for you get, to get up on, to the next level of the story. You know, so it's, it's interesting, you know, when I was younger, I really had a, a more um, superstitious idea of writing, like the muse has to be there. You have to not be as screw up as usual. You know, you have to suppress your bad impulses. But now it feels more like, no, just, you know, start anything. Whatever problems present are actually hallways. They're saying, go here. Uh, it basically saying, your reader's wondering about this. Your reader's wondering how this guy came to be in here. That's not a problem. That's plot. You know, so so it's kind of sweet in a way. And I, although I've had a couple recently that I that are resisting that theory, they're not they're not finishable. But but mm. in general, it's a pretty good way to think about it. So there are still some that are unfinishable. You yeah, I wrote one that was supposed to go in this book, and I thought it was a great idea, and it, it had to do with um, uh, a group of people who are Civil War deniers. They mm. they just they believe that the Civil War was a fake, you know, and that and that it was uh, the liberals, you know, came up with. But, and it, it's got really good moments and it's pretty funny, but I've showed it to uh, two people I really trust. And they both said, nope, it's just, no, your, your politics is too glaring in it. I can't, and they, they share my politics, but yeah. this isn't doing the work of a story. And that, so that's funny. Cause I, I read it recently. I thought, no, I don't know. I think it's kind of, or I thought it should be possible to write about, for example, conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't write about them in that story with a lot of tenderness, which might be the problem. But then I kind of think, well, I mean, you know, you shouldn't have to. Um... Yeah, anyway, there's something about that story that's that's I've got a lot to learn from, but I'm not sure what it is yet. Is that an example? Because I know you've said in the past that you are suspicious of stories that you come up with the, the conceptual idea of it, as opposed to the intuitive, I've got this voice in my head, and I'm just going to follow where it leads. But if you have a conceptual idea of theme, the story often fails. I think you might be right about that because I, I, I don't think it started out like that, but quickly it became kind of my chance to poke at QAnon or something like that, you know? And so I think you might be right that it, it's doing too well, the small thing I assigned it. I was heartened to hear that I mean, you've made reference to the nonfiction piece that you wrote for the New Yorker on the Trump rally. And, and, I heard you talking to them about the the terrible first draft of that you mm -hmm. turned in, which was, you know, like read like a screenplay or an opera or something. And um, I was like, oh, you know, even George Saunders can write a, a bad first draft. It, it, I don't know. I, I, I know. Th I think, I think especially, especially me, because I, you know, once you, as you know, you know, once you become a convert to revision, uh, why not make a mess? It doesn't matter. Your your good taste is going to clear it up. And, you know, I, I heard Toni Morrison say one time that she, I think the idea was that she equated her, the book of her she liked the best with having been messy at the beginning. Something like you have to make a big, deep, deep foundation, which means a lot of dirt. But mm -hmm. then, the, then the thing has, 
has more power. So yeah, I I think it's okay. I don't I don't think uh, I mean I've never written a good first draft except if you define it as I can work with this, you know. Right. Yeah, and that was that was funny because I was so um, confused by those rallies, and also I I didn't. I don't know. I'm not really in nonfiction, especially. I don't like blaming. I don't like hurting people's feelings or being harsh. So I had constructed this whole operatic libretto, basically, where the Trump supporters were singing one thing and some protesters were flying overhead singing another thing. <laughs> the New Yorker just was like, ah, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but David Remnick said something like, I, he's a, such a, a brilliant and sweet man. He said, I, I feel that you're resisting the hard work of uh, analysis. I mean, that was right. I was trying to get out of it. I didn't want to, you know. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about Google too, if we still have a few minutes of time. Oh, sure. Of course. I, I could do this all day. This uh, Google so much reminded me of Civil War land diary, you know, the, the, so it was kind of that old style of, oh, we're back in the, the carnival land and we're back yeah. in the simulator land. And it was another story where you didn't, you kind of didn't know what was going on. We were, you know, with a, with a narrator who was being lied to and and uh, we didn't know what was happening for quite a while. And there's a lot of world building, you know, the, the mm -hmm. rules are all different and we have to understand those while we're understanding who this, who these people are and, and what got them there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. What was the, uh, what was the kernel for that? Well, you have a great ear because the way that came about was I, I, I went to do the audiobook for Civil Warland that I um, had never done before. So I went in a couple of years ago and just got to read those stories, you know, and I hadn't read them in a long time, much less aloud. And I think, you know, in my mind, I thought, oh, yeah, they were good when I was young, but eh, whatever. But I was really kind of gobsmacked by how crazy they were. I really enjoyed reading them. And then I thought, I wonder if I have, you know, is it the case that we have those old voices dormant? You know, can we bring them back alive? So I said, I don't know, we'll try it, just try it. So I just started trying to do that voice, basically, the kind of a real tight, quirky first person voice in a theme park of sorts, you know? And so, um, yeah. And so I wrote myself into this uh, situation where I love the lines and I, but I had no idea what was going on. Uh, and I pieced it together. And the whole story was just made by a series of, um, just as we just talked about places where I went, I, I don't think this makes sense. Hmm. And then the story would say, well, can you try? You know, why do you think he might be underground? Why do you think this is? Um, so it was interesting, a, a case of kind of plot uh, showing itself to be a process of acknowledging the very valid question that a writer might, reader might have, and then doing your best to answer it, you know? And uh, and in the process, I, I didn't know either. It wasn't like I had some grand design, but it was just like, well, I don't know. They're, okay, they're underground, okay. And then, um, so that was a fun one because even when I got to the end of it, I wasn't sure what it was saying really, you know? Um, and then I revised, revised, revised. And I thought, I still don't know how, what it's saying, but I know where it's saying it. Like there's a certain moment when um, this guy starts to see the truth of the situation and he kind of turns to the camera and he says something like, you know, there are certain moments when the foundation you've been living on tilts. That's what it's about, you know, and that's where it kind of earned its place in the book, which is that that could be the theme for the whole book is there's just moments like the one we're in where all the kind of received knowledge and all our uh, self-congratulatory ideas about what kind of world we're in. They just they get pulled away. And then who, who are you? Yeah. 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 I loved your interview in The New Yorker for that because they asked, what's it about? And you said, I don't know. And I think you said that for a couple of these stories when they asked, what is this? <clears throat> 
I'm not really yeah. sure. And I thought, wow, that's that's kind of exciting to and scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that those those question and answers are done pretty well, in some cases, we're still editing when those first come. So it's always interesting to to be honest and say, I actually don't know that I could come up with something, you know, um, but I don't really know. And they're really great about letting me do that. And I, I, I think it's a valid thing, you know, and maybe really important, especially I think for younger writers to because um, the way we talk about writing often in classrooms or seminars is that the writer had this idea and then she did it. You know, she had a, a view of the world and then she dramatized it or something. And, uh, you know, as you know, that's actually not right. That, that would make a very boring story. That's almost a guarantee. So we're in the process of not knowing for an extended amount of time. And as we've been discussing, you don't know, but you're trying to find out in the actual writing process. That's different, you know, and also what's the intended effect? Well, actually, it's not to teach anybody anything, but it's to uh, lead them through an experience, you know, that, that if you're lucky, it ends with a, huh, whoa, you know, like when you get off a roller coaster, you, you, you don't, you're not analyzing, you're just gasping, you know? So I, I think with young writers, it's, it's important young artists to say, well, let's be honest about how you do it, which is, you know, wandering in the wilderness a little bit with certain, a certain skill set, And what are you trying to do? And that second thing, especially, and maybe even more in a time like this, it's fairly modest what you're trying to do, but very important. You know, you're, you're trying to maybe, you know, you could say it a million ways, but you're trying to remind or introduce, yeah, you're trying to remind the reader of what a sense of wonder feels like, trying to remind the reader of what not being sure feels like, and that they're actually pretty good at that. They can exist in a state of uncertainty with letting more data come in, you know. So I, I like to talk about that with my students because otherwise, if you have the idea that you're supposed to be, you know, teaching somebody something. I, I don't know that that makes for good stories, really, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I was noticing in here, are all the use of question marks, I was calling it the George Saunders question mark. And it seems like that's sort of how the, your whole approach to the short story form is, is kind of this, as you say, kind of this sense of wonder and the sense of, I don't know, and I'm, I'm writing yeah. it out, but your characters do that too. You know, there's yeah. characters are often talking in questions. Yeah, I think, you know, I love the idea of, of if, you know, if we're taking a walk in the woods and we're both getting uneasy and you go, are we lost? That's a, that's a big moment of communication because like you, we either are or we're not. I either think we are, or, you know, um, right. as opposed to two people walking in the woods, both feeling increasingly lost and nobody's saying anything, you know. So and in, in writing, the, the are we lost can be a way of uh, finding plot or something, you know, like if you if I know that the story is leaving you and I mystified as reader and writer, well, then I kind of know what I have to do. The next thing to do is, you know, it's just to try to find a way out. And, you know, so many stories like in on Gogol, that, that great story of his, the nose, you know, he, it doesn't make, it doesn't add up. I, I wrote about this. <laughs> it doesn't add up. But at the end, the writer turns to the camera and goes, it doesn't add up, does it? <laughs> and suddenly you're like, oh yeah, good. He's, <laughs> you know, I'm still with you. <laughs> This it's like saying this dinner tastes terrible, doesn't it? This this is the worst quiche I've ever made. Yeah, and then you can kind of you know order a pizza and not. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of my favorites, Liberation Day, which reminded me so much of Semplica Girl's diary. Again, you you you're right. There oh. was yeah, I was looking for something to do, and I was um had, had been writing uh 
with the British genius Richard Iowate, um, a screenplay for Semco Girl Diaries. Yeah. And um, that was on my mind. Um, what, what kind of what a what a fraught idea that is that somebody uh, demobilized for your amusement, you know, that. And then also, I just I think I just finished that Russian book and I had that the title of that Turgenev story, The Singers, in my mind, like The Singers. I really like that. Um, yeah. And those two things just came together all, along with, again, the desire to do a crazy voice. I wanted to do a distinctive voice. And yeah, and I always I think back and I don't really remember how the first two pages got written, but suddenly there they were and like, oh, all right. So we're this is what we're this is what we're doing now. Yeah, that was another one where you had to trust for a while before you. Quite a long time. Yeah. Quite a long time. Even at the end, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, and then the, the uh, that, that one also had a moment of um, where, I re where I introduced a totally off the wall, uh, that Custer stuff, you know, where, where <laughs> and that was, it was interesting because I had that, the feeling, um, you know, I'd written it up to that point and I knew I needed a kind of vignette for these performers to do. And I'd been reading a lot about Custer really my whole life. And I just thought, oh, what the hell? Put it in there, you know, um, as opposed to let's think of the exactly perfect thing to put in there. It's like, no, you know a lot about that. Put it in there. Uh, and so then after that, the rewrite, rewriting just became like, all right, how do I make these two disparate things start to talk to each other a little bit? You know, not not too neatly, but how do I get them in conversation? Um, so that was fun. I felt a little bit like a. It was a bit of like, I mean, this is kind of braggy, but I felt like it was a bit of a bravura, like saying, oh, hell with that. I'll just put that in there and see if I can revise it into coherency, you know? And, and so that was, I, I always like the feeling of, um, like, I don't like the feeling of trying to uh, slavishly come up with a meaning of a story. I don't like the idea of phoning it in. What I really love is the idea that you've given yourself a worthy challenge and you're not entirely sure you can do it. That, that's, that's where my energy really kicks in. Yeah. That story had another good example of one of your kind of interesting sex scenes, things that you can do with that, that are working on multiple levels that it's, it's cringy and it's great. And it's another texture that you wouldn't expect of these, but it's another layer of exploitation. Yeah. But and also, also there's something I, I, you're talking about with the wife, right? With the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause I, when you first said that, I don't, I don't think I've ever written a sex scene, but, yeah. but uh, yeah, no. And that was, that was I have a liberal interpretation of sexy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was, yeah. but it was cringy, but I also felt like on, uh, as I wrote it, I thought, oh yeah, actually both of these people, they, they want to be here at some level. I mean, now our narrator has some, you know, his agency is somewhat reduced, but there was something uh, I thought really genuine about his feelings for her. And I thought maybe even vice versa. And actually that's what the story hinged on was, does she feel the same way? And of course we, we find out, but I, I thought, um, yeah, you know, like, um, sex scenes, they're, they're like fighting scenes, you know, they're very full of energy. And, uh, I think you can do an interesting thing in fiction, which is you can take, you can take input from different parts of your mind and combine them in ways that, sh that are surprising. So in that one, when, when he at one point is describing his feelings of tenderness for her, that was one of the best love letters I've ever written, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but it's being written by somebody who, you know, is literally pinioned to a wall. That's, hmm, that's weird, you know, and she's, you know, so anyway, you, you add these different elements up and it makes a really uh, lively and, and cringy is the right word. You're not quite sure how to think of it. Uh, and I think cringy, you know, or, or, or sort of not knowing what to think about a section is a great way to keep somebody with you.
Right. You know, if you tell them exactly what they think, they'll just they'll go have a snack. You know, and and, and but if if they're uh, confused, if they're looking at it and trying to figure it out, they'll stay with you. Absolutely. So a lot of these were published in the New Yorker. Four, four or five of them before. Did, were you tempted to keep tinkering with them before they went into the final book? Oh, and I yeah, and I, I definitely did. Yeah, did tinkering, you? tinkering, not not big reworkings, but um, yeah, I think you, I, I feel like you should always take that opportunity. Although I also trust that um, the clarity that you get in the final, especially with the New Yorker, you're working so hard on you know on the on them, and you get so sensitized to the every little motion within them that those decisions you make in that mode are pretty smart uh so i didn't do much but yeah there's definitely some tinkering with this word choices and you know is this joke better than this joke and I, I have a thing where like my my ear gets um and it may just be a form of self-hypnosis but as i'm reading a draft i really can feel where uh the energy drops or micro drops or you know where um a line could be better and so uh, on the, on those stories, it's always a matter of do I trust my mind now or how it was four months ago, you know. And and generally, since the book is coming out soon, I just say, okay, I'll trust myself now. I, this guy's got to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't have a choice at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, and when I go back to read it next year, I'm probably will feel a little differently too, but not much differently, I think, you know. Or listening to the audiobook was funny because there are times where the actors got laughs that I didn't even know were there, or times when I would listen to the way I wrote it and go, oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, wonder what he was thinking. That's, you know. This meter in your brain that you always talk about is a result you think of who you are or a result of how much you've read. I, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's all of it, but mm. a lot of reading, I assume. Like, I, I just don't feel like I can trust that, that interior. Yeah. yeah. As well, you know. Well, it's kind of a, mo I mean, it's a, a model and what it really is about is, is I think one's, um, yeah, like how strong is your opinion about a sentence that you're reading, you know, and I think it's, some of it's innate, you know, like I, I've been a sentence freak since I was in third grade and I, that nun gave me Johnny Tremaine and I was just all over the style of that book. Oh, it's so weird. Um, so it's something, and I think we can, we can train ourselves, you know, to, it's almost like if you, um, you know, like if you had were lined up between five people and someone said, you have to marry one of these people, you got you got two days, you know, you could be you could be pretty harsh. I mean, you'd have to be, you know, you'd have to really look. So I think some of that is um, it's a function of us giving permission to ourselves to be hyper picky in that one phase of our life, you know, where nobody knows that you're, you know, staunchly opposed to that semicolon. You just are and you do it. Um, but also, I think that you're exactly right, that wobbliness of the meter, everybody, I mean, that's totally a problem for me. That's why I have to keep rewriting, you know. So I think in a way, you, I, I treat it as like a, a a real, you know, it's a meter, it does work, but it's not 100% reliable. So that's why you got to keep coming back day after day after day. And maybe for me, it's better to err on the side of trusting it too much one day, making the change, have that excess present in my story. Then I come back the next day and see how it hits me, you know, right. uh, over and over and over and over. And then at some point you go, well, that's, I've tried it all the other ways. So, you know, but, but again, that's just a metaphor, you know, that works for me and I have overused it, but, um, but it's the quickest way I know how to describe that where my mind is when I'm revising. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't know how I missed this, but you teach on Substack. So I just signed up so we can. Oh, good, good. Well, I, I thought that's a great resource for writers. Most of our audience is writers themselves. So yeah, for, you know, a pretty nominal amount of money a year. Oh, we have so much fun there. It's an amazing group. Like I didn't know what it would be, you know, and there's a comment section and it's been so, uh, for me, just selfishly rewarding. I've learned so much from what people say and, and from having to, uh, you know, I'm, we do maybe every two weeks, we do another story. We just did Zora Neale Hurston, uh, The Guild of Six Bits. And so I have to kind of sit up straight and read it and really teach it. And then the, uh, the audience comments, and it's been a, just a fantastically positive thing, you know, beautiful. That's great. Yeah. So people should check that out. That's a good resource. And, uh, and this, the books tour for this is just starting. So I assume um, if we go on your website, there, there's probably a bunch of virtual events. They're always, they're always uh, are. Now. This time, supposedly we're doing one virtual event with Random House, but all the rest is in person, knock on wood. Oh. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, do my best to try to avoid getting sick and getting anybody else sick. And yeah, I'm so excited because we didn't do it for the Russian book at all. Right. So it'll be, it'll be really fun to get out. And uh, we've got some great um, uh, people to talk with and, and it should be really fun. Are you oh, in Southern California very often? Yes, yes. We're uh, we we got a little apartment in LA now, and then we live uh, most of the time up in Santa Cruz. So we're kind of full time Californians. Then I go back to teach uh, in in Syracuse uh, in the fall. Okay. So, yeah. Good that's, life. <laughs> that's a good life. That's yeah. good. Well, this was so fun. I really appreciate. Oh, this. you're an amazing. You have an amazing narrative mind. So so please comment a lot on Story Club. We want to hear from you. George Saunders. Thank you so so much. Thank you so much. What a treat. That was George Saunders. The book is Liberation Day. It's out and available later this month, published by Random House. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and elsewhere. And as always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. 